You are the solution. We are the future. Radically different. Together and unity above all. This is Revolution Radio. Moving forward from centuries of systemic racism is going to take work and honesty with ourselves and each other. We're going to have to have some long overdue, uncomfortable conversations. Racism is not a black and white issue. It's deeply ingrained in our society in ways you might not even realize. We have to recognize the limits of our own perspective and listen to the people that racism affects on a daily basis. Stories from the front lines of the fight for equality, protest tips, ways you can support the revolution even if you can't make it to the front lines, and music to keep up the morale and inspire unity. Revolution Radio has got you covered. Make no mistake, we have a once in a lifetime chance to bring about true positive change in a world that works for all. The power has and always will be with the people. When the rules do not respect some of us, we do not respect the rules. And now your host, Sig Neutron. Okay, so I am super excited for this conversation. I'm here with Maybe Setledge. Uh, she's a teacher and she was an activist starting in the 70s, uh, mainly working with like police brutality and equal rights for black people. So Maybe, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Sig. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I think you're get, like, we've done a few chats before this, and I think you have a lot of really awesome information. And uh, so I'm just going to kind of like let you uh, take us through your life and, and what you've done and what you know, and uh, I'll just kind of listen and ask questions here and there. Actually, that's not the direction I was going to go. Okay. I'm going to talk about my life, but mostly with respect to the research that I've done on the what I think is the question of white supremacy, the, the fundamental questions of white supremacy. So when we started our conversation, um, you had asked about the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Mm -hmm. So I was never in the party. As a white woman, I felt um, it was the Black Panther Party and I, and I would work with them, but I felt that the integrity of the organization um, was needed to be a black organization. And of course that it was, mm -hmm. but I did work with the party for, for many, many, many years. And I would suggest if people are interested in the Black Panther Party, that there are still Panthers around that can be uh, available for speaking or in books that they've written and, and can give a much more developed understanding of the workings of the party than I could. However, I did work with them for many, many years and I knew many Panthers and I learned a lot over the years from listening and working with and, 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 and also reading. And the party started in 1966 with Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. There had been a spate of police killings in Oakland and brutality, and they had seen this continue to, to happen in their community, and they wanted to find a way to defend Black people from this. So they started to bear witness to the police coming into the Black community with brutality. They had read a book called uh, Negroes with Guns by Robert F. Williams. It talked about people in Mississippi that had picked up guns to protect themselves from the Ku Klux Klan. So they thought this is something that they could, they could do in Oakland. So they started doing the patrols. At that particular time, the California law made it legal to carry loaded firearms. So when they, when they witnessed police fixing to do an act of violence against black people, they would step out of their cars and stop them. Well, you know, just the way that the standard ground law now is not meant for black people, being able to carry loaded guns was not at that time meant for black people. So when Whites got wind of this. They said, we got to change the law. So a man named Mulford introduced a bill called the Mulford Act that would take away the right of, of people to carry loaded guns. 
So in order to protest that, a group of young Panthers got their rifles and went to the state capitol to give evidence of why it was necessary that they uh, are able to carry guns in the state capitol at the hearings. As they were walking across the lawn, Ronald Reagan happened to be there talking to some eighth graders. And of course he was terrified and horrified and then security pushed him away and, and, uh, and they went in and actually went into the Capitol and said that this law needed to not be repealed. Well, interestingly enough, Reagan and the NRA defeated, they, they enacted the Mulford law and defeated the ability for people to legally carry loaded guns in the street. The only time in history that the NRA supported a restrictive law for carrying and, and having guns, the only time they ever did that was to stop the Panthers. So besides self-defense, the party had many, many programs in the community. They had what they called the 10-point platform, what we want, what we believe, that included full employment for black people, free health care, which is so timely right now, and an end of police brutality. They had programs to distribute free groceries to the poor, and specifically in black communities. They had free breakfast programs for inner city schools, and they had uh, open sickle cell uh, anemia clinics to test people for sickle cell. Now, some of those clinics actually became health clinics for the community, and the free breakfast program became so popular that it actually embarrassed the state of California to start instituting free breakfast programs in public schools. So the free public, the free breakfast in public schools is a result of Panther work wow. back in the 60s and 70s. They expanded into a national movement across the United States. They were identified as J. Edgar Hoover as an enemy, a horrible enemy of the United States. He wrote many, many um, missives to his folk to neutralize Panthers and 30 Panthers lost their lives. They were killed, they were shot, they were bur their homes were bursted into and, and they were shot in their beds. They were shot in the street. I was in Atlanta when police just drove by and sprayed bullets into the Panther office in Atlanta. They had the shootout on 41st and Main in Los Angeles. And the intention was to militarily stop the Panthers. They also would charge them and overcharge them so that when they did donation campaigns, instead of being able to do the programs that they were doing, feeding people and helping people, the money had to go to the defense of their comrades who had been overcharged and were in court. Mm -hmm. Well, myself, I admire the courage, commitment, and organization of the party. But what really changed my life was their insistence that if you were going to be a supporter of the, of the Black Panther Party, you had to study Black history, African-American and African history. Mm -hmm. Well, the history of Black people in the United States was one of shame for me as a white person, the depth of our cruelty, the depravity and greed in creating and maintaining human beings as farm animals. In the island of Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, the French Code Noir said, the Negro is a movable good. They labeled him as a movable good. He was commerce. People were commerce and nothing but profit. In the United States, the auction blocks, the chains, the whips, the hot boxes, the branding, selling children away from their parents, the rapes, cutting, burning, the terrorism. It was a system of terrorism that then after the Civil War was carried out by the Ku Klux Klan and then developed into the police departments that we now see. Don't forget, it went from slave breakers that took free independent people and turned them into a submissive, attempted to turn them into a submissive farm animal, literally, 
that became the slave controllers, the slave catchers, and then eventually the beginning of the modern police department. It always had the goal of black submission. But the people perpetrating this called themselves Christians, and they wanted a veneer of respectability for their despicable behavior. So how do you achieve this? Well, you take black people out of the human story. You take black people out of history and start a fiction that black people are not completely human. In any, in any sense, conquest by one people over another starts, with, starts physically with weapons, but it becomes long-term and successful with ideology. The European military conquest of most of the world covered every continent with waves of white supremacy and destroyed the cultures and cultural supports of people all over the world. But I want to focus on one strategy that the Europeans use very successfully. It brought Christianity and declared whatever indigenous religion it found in wherever it was in the world as devil worship. Over the ensuing centuries, these indigenous religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, traditional African, uh, traditional Native American religions, have now been recognized as legitimate and respected religions, but not African traditional religion. On the continent or in the diaspora, they're still referred to as devil worship by people who would have no knowledge of their reality or practice. So think about the implications of this. If you can convince a people that they didn't know God until you introduced him to them, him to them, and further that the only God they knew by their ancestors and that their ancestors knew was the devil. But the real God chose you to help you. It will be very difficult for that people to ever see themselves as your equal. That if you carry that misinformation throughout your, your colonies and throughout the world, you condemn Africans to a very hard time achieving self-determination and true independence. It creates a form of, as Bob Marley called it, mental slavery. So that's on site, that's at the time. But how do you build and maintain the myths of white supremacy? Many white people right now, and this is why I'm glad I'm, I, I have the opportunity to do this. Many white people right now are feeling very guilty and very bad, and they're willing to read and they're willing to listen and investigate white privilege and implicit bias. And that I laud them for that. I'm happy for that. But for me, the basis of bias, implicit or explicit, is a feeling and belief in being superior. And whites can feel superior because they have not been taught true world history. There was, in fact, in the United States, a husband and a wife team of historians, so to speak, that wrote a multi-volume history of civilization. They were Will and Ariel Durant. And they had in their introduction, Africa was the only continent that produced no history. They actually wrote that and no, no doubt wished it were true and taught it to millions of people. It was my starting point when the Panthers told me to study. So first I started reading the history of Africa, including accounts of the Portuguese explorers that described African cities on the east coast of Africa, prosperous, large cities of palm-lined streets and women with beautiful clothing and organized societies. Benin City, with a wall that used more blocks to surround their area than went into the pyramids. The Kingdom of Congo, with a capital larger than London at the time. Well-ordered civilizations in West Africa, Ghana, Mali, and Songhai and the great civilization in Southern Africa of the Monomatapa, the great Zimbabwe. All of this flew in the face of my imagined superiority. But hundreds of years of the slave trade broke down those civilizations, destroyed the evidence of those civilizations, and reduced the people to a very, very difficult and hard lifestyle. So that when missionaries came in in the late 80s, in the late 1800s, they saw simple naked Africans and they said, oh, look how these poor people, they need our help. 
Well, they had been broken by whites first before they ever looked like they needed help. 12 and a half million Africans, at the lowest count, 12 and a half million Africans were removed from their communities. Well, more than that, because many died on their way to the ships on the West Coast, but traveled across in the Middle Passage, 12 and a half million Africans were removed from their communities and from their families. When I continued my research, I realized that the roots of African cultures in the, in the West of the country had their roots in the East that when the Malamukes took over Egypt, thousands of people of the Nile Valley took their knowledge and culture to the West. Egyptians crossing the Sahara to influence West Africa and produce a new civilization. So that led to a study of ancient Egypt and the obvious fact that borne out through wall paintings and statuary, the pyramids and temples of e ancient Egypt, the great builders and genius of ancient Egypt were black Africans. Now this is just horrifying to modern Egyptology. They do everything they can to fight it, but it is obviously true just by sight if you see it. The first religious text ever written, the pyramid text written by black Africans. And if you read the original writings of the men who have been called Greek philosophers, they write that they got their ideas and knowledge from Egypt. It was not original. There, there, was, there were Greeks who came to Alexandria never having put a word to paper, and they went back to Greece and wrote volumes and volumes of, of knowledge and philosophy. Well, they didn't have it before they went there. They got it from Africans. If you read the original writings, they say that. They say that they got their ideas from Egypt. But I was taught by my history teacher at Audubon Junior High that God gave knowledge to the Greeks so that they could take over and control the world. In fact, they got their knowledge from black African Egyptians. Now, Egyptologists love to say now that the ancient Egyptians were white. Mostly all of them say it. But Herodotus, the Greek historian from 440 BC, described the Egyptians as woolly-headed, broad-nosed, full-lipped, burnt-skinned people. But it wasn't an issue. Nobody cared. Race hadn't been invented. The idea of race and racism had not been invented. So it, we just described them as a people, as he described other people and their features. It was just their features. It was nothing. It was no laden concept of this. Until Europeans decided through military might to take prosperous, independent, free people and declare them farm animals, race didn't exist as a concept. The word race was introduced by the French in about 1580 to mean an identifiable group of people who share a common descent. Now, I'm not saying there weren't always ethnic rivalries. There were all over, all over the world throughout history, but they weren't codified to promote one group globally while condemning others to inferior status and then codified by something called scientific racism. I wanna mention in the context of this, the modern world we live in. Modernity was started with slavery. The new economic system of capitalism that began 500 years ago had as its essential underpinnings, Christianity and white supremacy in conquering lands from native peoples of the Americas and getting free labor from enslaved people from Africa. That made the modern age. And the first real challenge to modernity, to the continuing consolidation of capitalism and slavery, was by the Africans enslaved on the island of Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti. That these heroic Africans mounted a war of independence against France, against Napoleon's troops from France, and resisted the interference of the British, Spanish, and Americans of the US was unthinkable to contemporary whites. It was impossible, and yet it happened. 
that for the first time, a black man declared with arms that God did not make the African to be a slave. And then for the only time in human history, an enslaved country defeated the slaveholders and created an independent country. And Haiti has been paying for this effrontery ever since. To me, all this is the mess that we're in in the midst right now. And it also contains its solution. When we find the truth, you know, there's an old adage to say truth makes free, but that's not, I don't believe that's true. But truth can set you on the path to how to fight for your freedom. So my feeling is if well-meaning whites want to change and want to improve their behavior as a people and want to become better people, then I really recommend that they study history. They don't just look at their own behaviors, that they're implicit bias and blah, blah, but look at history because it changes your relationship to the world. It allows you to be a partner, a person, a, a fellow traveler in the world instead of its master. So during the time of all these brutal murders by police and all over, I want to mention something else. Some people call those who protested the first few days of the, of the massive protests across the country who, where there was some uh, property damage, they called them thugs and rioters. And they called violence. But I don't call property damage violence. Violence is something that's done to the living. And in that, you know, there was a program on the, because there's a lot of black program put on, pr programming being put on TV right now, they showed a film that was made several years ago that, that documented what had happened in uh, 1992 at Florence and Normandy during the rebellion in Los Angeles. Before I say that, I wanna mention many people are aware of lynching or they've heard the word or they, we see nooses now appearing uh, to intimidate black people. We've seen black men hanging uh, even now in the, last, in the last weeks. And I'm sure everybody knows that lynching was when whites took people and beat, broke, burnt, and hung them. Some were Native American, some were Mexican American, some were even white horse thieves, but the vast majority were black people and mostly men. This was not done only by a few. There were lynchings that were announced ahead of time. So busloads of whites bringing picnics could, could, could watch the spectacle. Even some had trains bringing spectators to see the horror of white supremacy. Over 3,000 black people were lynched. Sometimes whites took pictures. Sometimes they made postcards. Sometimes they took ears and fingers and genitals from the victims as keepsakes. And then we contrast that with what happened in 1992 that was shown over and over again about the brutality of the, of the rioters, they call them, uh, on Florence and Normandy. But the difference was this, when black young men were so outraged at the acquittal of the officers who beat Rodney King, that they went out in the street and they grabbed some white people and beat them up. Another, actually there was some Asians and some, some Latinos as well. And they showed this, these, beatings of whites on Florence and Normandy. In every case, other black people went in to save them. In every case, some took them to the hospital, some just pulled them out of the area and secured their safety. No one was killed on that corner because of the interference of other blacks observing it and saying, that's enough, stop, you're gonna kill him. But not once did a white person jump in and stop a lynching. Not once did they say, my God, look at what you're doing, this is a human being. That just did not happen under lynching. And as what Toni Morrison says, what are you without racism if you can only be tall if others are on their knees? And that was the purpose of lynching. The purpose of what, happen, what happens in an angry reaction is an expression of anger. But what lynching was about and what so much of American policy is about is submission. 
black submission. So much of history was written and taught, many stories, books, and movies. The first full-length movie in history was made to promote white supremacy. It was called... Uh, the Birth of a Nation? Remember. Birth of a Nation, yes. To, 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 to laud the Ku Klux Klan and to make black people look backward. Gone with the wind, make black people look backward. This, these were set all over the world and they created a race prejudice against black people all over the world. And in Africa, Europeans changed the names of the mountains, the lakes, the waterfalls, the roads, naming them after Europeans. They named the people after Europeans. So there'd be no touchstone, no ancestral reminder for Africans to remember when they had been free, when they had been self-determined. But thankfully, there are now people in and from Africa that are working every day as storytellers and scholars that research, uncover, and reconstruct the African past that can bring historical confidence to black people and allow white people to release their destructive sense of superiority, allow whites to live in this world, not try to be masters of it. As Toni Morrison has said, slavery did terrible damage to black people, but it did terrible damage to white people too and created in whites a profound neurosis. We have the opportunity to do something about that in this moment. This neurosis that keeps the United States from solving social problems the way other countries do. We can't get universal health care because of a critical mass of whites who would rather not have health care than let them have it. This destructive tendency is layered throughout American law and practice. It's what led to the international embarrassment of this Trump presidency. The one thing, people say, oh, it was economics. No, it was race. Racism and the call to white nationalism is what got that man elected. But as I say, we're in a moment now where there is fluidity, things could actually change and actually and dramatically change in, in many ways. And I hope that they do. Yeah, wow. I'm, I just, I'm, so much, you had so much amazing info there. I, I'm gonna have to like go back and listen to this like many, many times, um, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's mind boggling to me because uh, yeah, it, it was when all of this started, like, uh, I, you know, I, we learned about slavery and stuff a little bit in the, um, in, in school, but I was kind of taught like, oh, it's, it's done. There was never, it was like the, we won the civil war and end of slavery and everything was fine. Um, but now that I've been revisiting like black history and, uh, and I didn't even know that, uh, the black Panthers encouraged people to learn black history. I, that, that was something I just learned from you. Uh, but I've been spending every day watching a different black history documentary, reading like all these things and it's racism and never, never went away. It just changed forms, you know? Yes. Yes. And, yeah, so it's like, you know, we had this, then Jim Crow, and now we have like mass incarcerations and like for-profit exactly. prisons. And, you know, and it, the most astounding thing to me is that this entire time, black people have been demonized and like said that, like, like made them out to be like savages or something. But the, the white people this whole time have been terrorizing them, literally killing them and terror throughout like history, like not even that long ago like 70s, 80s still. It's like, it was still really bad. Very true. And the thing that always bothers me is that white people never take responsibility for their own actions. They always blame someone else. There was, I mean, think about, or maybe you, you wouldn't have known this. During the 60s and 70s and, and, and starting in the 80s, we were still in a civil rights mode, but with Ronald Reagan 
that started to be repealed and pushed back and it became blaming black people. You had people say, oh, they just pull the pants up. Oh, they're the worst, they're their own worst enemies. Oh, blah, blah. blah. And, and or, or, well, by now you would think they would, they would have stepped up. These, these uh, just insulting ways, condescending ways of looking at black folks and never acknowledging, why are you so worried about black behavior? Why don't you look at your own behavior? Some authors said, oh, well, black folks are the way they are because they don't have fathers. Well, what, first of all, they do. And second of all, what makes white people act the way they do? What made white people vote for Trump? What makes white people burn crosses? What makes white people uh, make up stories about blacks and, and discredit and brutalize the level of violence that whites have perpetrated onto black people. And this is something, uh, when I was teaching, actually I'm a retired teacher, when I was teaching, during the 90s there was a, there was like a theory of black folks as predators and, and they were, oh, these young men, they're so bad and they're so violent. And people would just literally say in public, well, you know, blacks and Latinos are more violent than other people. There were things written by psychologists saying, well, you know, black folks are more violent than other people. And so are Mexicans. And I would tell my kids, okay, because I was teaching Latino and, and black students, okay, just if you're ever in a situation where people say this, if you have a professor, if you're in high school or in college and someone says this, simply raise your hand and say, okay, but um, what about lynching? Put the, mm -hmm. flip it over, my God. The, the violence that, that people have had to endure has been perpetrated by whites and whites never take responsibility for it. But sp speaking of what you were saying as far as doing reading and, and watching documentaries, I have some things I'd like to suggest if you'd like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please. There was an excellent book written in the in the 2000s, early 2000s by Randall Robinson. You may know Randall Robinson was very uh, active in the anti-apartheid movement. He since moved to St. Kitts. He couldn't stay here anymore and he moved to St. Kitts. But he wrote a book called The Debt that is very, very good, Randall Robinson, that is about the contributions of black folk to America. With respect to slavery, I was taught in school that it really wasn't very profitable, that it kind of, if they hadn't had the Civil War, it would have petered out anyway. I remember that literally, it would have petered out anyway because it wasn't profitable. Oh my God, it was the most profitable system in the history of the world. The Southern states had more money than the combined countries of England, Germany, France, and I think another one up there, that it was vastly, it was incredibly profitable. And that story is told very well in a book by Edward E. Baptiste called The Half Has Never Been Told. This, it just describes the, the way that, and especially from the time when, when slavery was expanded through the South into Texas, that story and what the terrorism and the concentration camp conditions and plantations was, is done very well um, on a, Personal Stories, The Washington Black by Ezi Edugan, uh, no, Edugyan, Ezi Edugyan. Washington Black is very personal in its in its understanding, which I think we need both. Mm -hmm. The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates is an excellent description of what it was like under slavery, living under slavery. And then a good, excellent book that's old and might be out of print, is called The Documentary History of the Negro People by Herbert Apthecker. That is an excellent history of page by page how things how things happen in this country with respect to africa um when we ruled by robin walker is an absolutely outstanding comprehensive uh look at africa before it was ruined by europe 
The History of Africa by Molefe Asante is very, very good. And Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by Anthony Browder is very good at looking at, at it just changes your sense of, of, of greatness in the world. And it allows us to, to, to become more uh, members instead of, instead of masters, as I said earlier. On video, The History of Africa by Zainab Badawi is very good. Uh, Henry Louis Gates has a African history, which I couldn't, I don't know exactly the title, but it was from, 1970, from 2017 that was very good. And then with respect to colonialism, Nguyen Wathiongo has written some excellent short books about what it was like to have everything that was yours renamed by an other so that you had no reference. Your name didn't reference anything. Where you live, the street you live on doesn't reference anything that has to do with you. The, the mountain you're looking at doesn't have anything to reference you in it. Uh, and there's two books. One was called Decolonizing the Mind and the other was called Something Torn and New. Both of those are excellent. Then TV, I mean, a movies, 12 Years a Slave, of course, is, is very good. There's an old movie by John Burnett called Night John that's very good about a slave that would, would go to different plantations and teach people how to read. And the story is about a little girl who learns to read. Um, Just Mercy, of course, is great. So there's a lot of material right now that that is available to people if they want to, to investigate this and challenge themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a lot of people I hear it today. It's like there's there's the white argument that it's like, oh, equality's fine. They've the, black people have, have gotten enough and, uh, and and everything. But it's like once you start to study the history, you look at uh, so, like, let's just focus on like one aspect at a time. It's like uh, economics, like think about generational wealth. Like you talked about the yes. South. It was so wealthy. Well, where do you think that wealth goes? It passes down through like lineage. Exactly. And, and yes. now and black people have never accrued any kind of wealth to pass generationally. So already, that alone, they're starting way behind everybody else. Right. And even now in the 80s, don't forget, was it the 80s or the 90s, when black people had struggled and struggled to have a house and uh, Wells Fargo and others in 2008, rather, in 2008, took people's houses, some who had their mortgages paid up and yet they lost their houses because of this madness that went on and by the way no one went to jail for that they want they killed george floyd for a possible 20 dollar counterfeit bill but the people who put people out of their homes who helped add to the homeless problem who took people's wealth who took their generational wealth none of them went to jail not one went to jail we don't pay for what we do we don't we don't face consequences for our behaviors and there's something terribly wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. White collar criminals are it's like it's absurd, like how much they're like destroying people's lives. But they do it yes. like um, like overtly behind the scenes. It's so strange. Like we all know, like the banks are horrible and all this. Like we, we the corporate elite, like we know of this like looming entity. But it's like we can't seem to ever like g- like get our thumb on them you know it's like they just always slip away it's because they're because they're protected yeah they're funneling money into washington and they're the the politicians are making policy to protect corporations and they have this like we're living in like a corporate oligarchy you know and they protect each other it's it's reminiscent of what i was saying about haiti haiti fought the french the spanish this, the U.S. and Britain, and all of them were competing with each other to take the wealth because Haiti had, was representing great wealth at that time. And they all fought each other over that wealth until Haiti became independent. 
and then as the only free black republic, while America still had slaves and British still had slaves and the French still had slaves and the Spanish still had slaves, it was a it was an affront. It was it was outrageous. It was impossible. It shouldn't exist. And even though they had been competing before, they joined hands to try to defeat Haiti, and which though it never ever gave up its independence, certainly has been damaged by economic interference and, and just a plethora of things. I don't want to go on and on about that. But point being, when they're threatened, they come, they get together. So when these whites have done this stuff, the, the banks and the financial interests, they come together and protect each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you, know. you know what, another thing, when Bloomberg was running, I visited some friends down in Laguna and a neighbor came by, we were walking together and a neighbor came by and said, well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to vote for Bloomberg now because I know what he did with the stop and frisk wasn't right. But, you know, but like he said, that's where the crime was. And we just have to get past that. We as white people have to get past that and, and, and vote for him because he's the only one who can defeat Donald Trump. And it troubled me so much. And later I, I was sitting with them and, and said, you know, the problem is if white people take this cavalier attitude towards black, uh, the abuse of black people, we, we will not defeat Donald Trump because the crimes against black people aren't seen by whites. A crime where someone, you know, take, I mean, George Jackson took $12 from a liquor store and lost his life and, and was incarcerated for, for, for years and years and years and, and lost his life. This, what the crimes against black people in housing, in not being able to get a job, in not being able to join a union, in not being able to protect their kids, in not being able to send their children to good schools. These are crimes, but white people don't see them as crimes. So they see blacks and Latinos as a criminal element, whereas they are, you know, hey, we're white, we're good, we, we, we obey the law. We, like they'll say, like white people will say, if he had only complied, he wouldn't have been shot. And you can't find, whatever you say, people won't get shot for, in the last 10 years, people have gotten shot. There's nothing that black people could do to defend themselves to stop being shot if we look at the record of white behavior in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just saying yesterday uh, that, you know, the fact that, like, police even have to have body cameras on. Yes. We, that alone should speak volumes to, like, okay, something's not right here. You know, like yes. we like we can't trust these people to like carry gun. Like we have to monitor them. Like it's 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 bonkers, man. And that's what's crazy too to tie in the the Black Panthers is that, uh, you know, they started as the Neighborhood Watch because like police yes. brutality was still a thing then. It's still a thing now. And yes. they were doing something very. And the reason why they picked the Black Panthers because it you know it's it doesn't attack unless provoked. You know, and it was right. all like. There's this this story. It's just like generations and generations of oppression in different forms upon the black people, and then when leaving them no other option, like they can't kneel at a, an NFL ball game because like that's wrong. You're dishonoring the flag. You know you can't. No amount of peaceful protesting is acceptable. So then, at what point is like violence the only option? You know because they're literally being killed and oppressed. Like it's. They're given no other choice at some point. But then soon as they react in a, a proportionate manner to the force being used to oppress them, oh, they're criminals. They're they're bad. You know, it's just and again, remember, it was all about property damage. Black folks didn't attack white people. Yeah. They attack attacked white property. Yeah. Which again, I don't call that violence. That's just property damage. Yeah. 
So it's like, but you know, speaking of the LAPD, you know, in the, I was, when I was teaching in the nineties, oh my God, oh my God, young men would come in and say, and cry, literally, I'd take them in, the, in a little storeroom and they would cry, put their head on my shoulder and cry because LAPD under Daryl Gates would shove them up against a wall and squeeze their testicles. They would put their testicles and say, what you going to do? I got your testicles in my hand. What are you going to do? Wow. And sque- and they would say, Miss Ellis, that can't be right. They- they're not allowed to do that, are they? And of course, but you know, how many complaints? Complaints were-, were completely ignored. They would strip young black men in front of their girlfriends. So they say, take your clothes off or I'll shoot you. I'll blow your head off. I had a, a dear friend who worked at Carver and where I taught at George Washington Carver uh, Middle School. He was on his way to church with his girlfriend and the police pulled him over for no reason. And there happened to be a big puddle of water, muddy water. He was dressed for church. And they said, lay down and that will blow your head off. Just for what? Again, black submission. And I'm going to say something about that. I think this neurosis that uh, that Toni Morrison speaks of, I, I kind of figured out when I was, for I moved to Atlanta when I was 19. I was from LA and I moved to Atlanta when I was 19 and started working in the movement all full time. And, and I thought that one of the things that whites, particularly men feel towards black people is envy. They're envious of the fact that, you know, hey man, I took everything away from you. I took, I took your name, I took your freedom. I'll make you live in a shitty house. I'm sorry if I shouldn't swear. No, you're I make you live in a terrible house. I make you eat crappy food. I raped your woman when I feel like it. And still, you carry yourself with more confidence than I think I have. The seeing, the, 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 and you can see this in sports, you can see it in, in, in music, you can see it where blacks are allowed to participate. They do so with a, a vitality and admirable style that makes white men go nuts. Insecure white men, neurotic white men go nuts. I really think envy was an enormous part I, no matter what I do to you, you just won't be submissive. I just hate it. I can't stand it. How can you be so happy kind of a thing mm-hmm. that I think has gone on in white men and made them so vicious in their behaviors towards black people? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point, too, because, yeah, it's like you look at uh, from everything down into Mississippi, the segregationists and like just on and on, like how every turn they're literally trying to just like completely destroy black people. But some there, there's all, you know, like the Harlem Renaissance happened, you know, hip hop happened. It's like all of these like amazing, like soulful, like soul music, like everything it, they, they, it's just like all these beautiful things keep coming out of the black community. Exactly. And that is the truth. yeah. And, and I, I was just watching a uh, documentary last night about voodoo and tracing it back to Benin. Uh, and, yes. And uh, it's interesting there because they, they're sort of their religion now is like fractured. Like a lot of them, like they'll go to church um, and then they'll leave the church. And but when they have the problem, they'll go to the diviner. Um, but it's like a lot of them, they interviewed a lot of people and a lot of people are like confused because uh, colonization and, you know, the, the, the attempted erasure of their history and their culture. And, and it's like, it, it's such a beautiful culture. And it just, it's, I can't, you know, it, Historically, like the white people have, they they came to America, they like the genocide of Native Americans, and then they're forced like erasure of their history. They sent them off to like boarding schools, get renamed them, and try yes. to like completely yes. erase their culture. Terrible. 
Yeah, and then on top of that, like already horrible enough, then they import people that are slaves and they build a system of economics and slavery built on like the the submission of another race of people. And it's like, this is like, black people didn't do that. Native Americans didn't do that. It was all this like weird white, like need to conquest and colonize. And and to turn other equal humans into little people. Even now, the condescending attitude of many whites, even now, oh yes, we need to help. And when I was growing up as a child, we need to help our our little black brothers. Yeah, okay. And, And seeing others as little, when in fact, the fact that they are still here after everything that has been done shows that there's nothing little about them, not Native Americans, not not the the after we took over Mexico and called it America, not what we have done to Africans in this continent, in this continent and, and across the world. It's amazing. But um, what you said about voodoo is very key. If pe- people condemn it who don't know anything about it and this idea that there's devil worship. I remember it was probably in the maybe late 90s. I go to a to a uh, an African-American bookstore, a fantastic bookstore called S1. It's getting a lot of attention right now. And it should, and it's a wonderful book, sir. But I remember it's not that long ago that you started seeing books on Santeria and Vaudoux and uh, Candomblé, because before that you couldn't, you couldn't do that. It was like that had to stay hidden. It was, it was uh, just unthinkable to imagine that African traditional religions are religions, mm-hmm. and they are. And what was so surprising to me, well, no, it was a revelation to me was finding out not only are they beautiful and and um, real and legitimate in their own self, but that if you follow the trail, it goes back to the faith and religion of ancient Egypt mm-hmm. in many of their forms. It's the same thing. And this civilization that started civilization for the world is the one that ended up in the form of religions in West Africa and then, of course, in the diaspora. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. It's so so strange. Uh, last year, and I'm doing a documentary about this. Uh, last year, um, Randy and I we had a spiritual awakening, and um, like she started uh, channeling. She's Filipino. She started channeling spirit, and then they started. Th- this all started when we went to New Orleans, uh, by the way. Uh-huh. And then when we came home, she kept channeling spirit, and then eventually, uh, these spirits were. Uh, telling us, like, teaching us about Arisha and uh, Ifa and all these like African traditions, and yeah. so it's like we literally like had spirit guide us to learn about these traditions. And this all happened last year, and I was like, I don't understand. Like, I'm white. Like, why? Why is spirit teaching me? You know, African traditions, and now it's all beginning to make sense because of what's happening this year. And it's like, okay. it, and so I, I'm actually like way more knowledgeable about uh, African religions and things. And I actually like it's my spiritual practice is very similar. And I, I realize it's all because that's where everything started, you know? Yes. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and you know, when you get a blessing, just, just go with it. Yeah. Don't question it. Yeah. That's, I mean, it, it's some, I, like, cause I was questioning in the beginning, but then it was like, it, the more we interacted with spirit and the more like realized, you know, uh, like I've seen, like all these synchronicities happens. Like I've seen the power of spirit. Like I, like, it's mind-boggling, and the and the thing with like African traditions and voodoo and and uh, candomblé and you know santeria and stuff, it's very the spirit is very active in daily life. 
it's weird because Christian tradition or like, you know, Western uh, religious thought, it's very removed. It's very like pray to this like untouchable God and then maybe he'll help you or something. But, you know, it's like it's, in African traditions, it's like they're very uh, apparent in life and they're very accessible, you know. Um, participatory. Yeah, absolutely. African religions are participatory. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Christianity was rule oriented. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of rules. You have to follow the rules. You know what else is is a is something too? Um, the idea that we're original sin. Oh my goodness! Ah, I I talk oh, about this all the time. I know original sin. Um, if you study Egypt, you find that there's many forms of this: the 42 negative confessions, or the 29 negative confessions, or the. But it was what people said as their heart was being weighed. In the and after death, their heart would be weighed against the feather of Maat. Maat was the uh, goddess of justice and balance. And if your heart was heavier than the feather, then you were condemned. But if it was equal to or lighter than a feather, then you went on to paradise. And so, within the context of this, oh my goodness, I lost my train of thought. Okay, wait. We're talking about original you know, sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 68. I, I tend to lose my train of thought sometimes. Yeah, original sin, that under the way of ancient Egyptian religion, what you said was, I have not, I have not, I have not committed adultery. I have not uh, taken water from a temple. I have not taken uh, food from the poor. And the Ten Commandments are inside of all of that number of negative confessions. But whereas the Egyptian took responsibility for his own life and said, I have not, the Jews, the Hebrews wrote, thou shalt not, so that your authority comes from outside of yourself. And that to me is enormous. Oh, it's wow. in, and that's the same thing what you just said, that the African religion is participatory. We engage with spirits and we learn from them and we act with them, whereas the book religions are in, are rule-oriented and structured and somebody tells you, you better not do this, you better not do that. And that is huge. It's huge with respect to what do you really believe? What do you believe that you're capable of? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have a theory that, and this sort of all ties into the colonialism and everything, is that uh, in the church, too, because the church was just as bad at, you know, at, it's like genocide and, you know, like the Essenes, and um, it is that I think that the story of Jesus actually was one of, he was trying to show people what the, is possible. And I think that everybody, because like in early Gnostic, Gnosticism and, uh, you know, the beliefs of the scenes, it was all about ascension. It was all about, uh, again, very participatory. It was very, uh, you can elevate yourself spiritually and your consciousness up to these levels and have these powers and things like that and ascend consciousness. But I think, I have a theory that I think that that's what Jesus's message was. But then the Romans were like, whoa, dude, like we cannot have uh, everybody being like magical Jesus is around here. So what they do, they quash the rebellion or, you know, the the this yes. enlightenment. And then they rewrite the story where you were born in sin. You have to spend every day groveling and, and for the fact that you were even born. And then you instill that into the people. And that makes them easily submissive, easily controllable because it's exactly. all because, yeah, you were born in original sin. I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you that 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 is how you control people. First, you take them over militarily. Then you feel them fill them with a bunch of crap like that. Don't let them have their own ideas. Don't don't allow them to practice their own faith. You fill them with that, and then they become submissive, and you can rule them. Mm -hmm. You can rule them without violence. You can rule them without a military. Yep. They'll they'll ask for their own submission. You know, 
Yeah. By the way, I want to mention before, before I don't know how far we're going to go, but mm-hmm. uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander okay. is exactly necessary for these times. In the books that I, that I mentioned, also, this The New Jim Crow by um, Michelle Alexander is just outstanding. It really changed the language on this era that we're in with respect to mass incarceration. Mm. But you see, that's the thing, is that we have to look at the various levels. How do you maintain order? And you look at a man like Donald Trump, you want to maintain order by appealing to the very worst in people who like that worst and then just stoke it Mm -hmm. and stroke it and encourage it. And then you just don't care what they do. I'm very concerned at the language he's using now. Oh, yeah. He is calling on his militias. The militias were there before before him, but they have all identified with him, and he has identified with them. He is calling on those militias to come out and shoot people. The fact that they were took the cover of the demonstrations against the killing of George Floyd and took it as an opportunity to kill law enforcement, and then the who gets blamed? Oh, look at the Antifa, blah blah blah. Which, of course, is absolutely if you know anything about oh, Antifa, dude, yeah. ridiculous. I know, ridiculous. Oh my god. But but the fact that he is using language that is literally calling on them. And the fact that he said, let's have MAGA night at the White House while the demonstrations were going on. The day that he walked across with his, the Bible, it wasn't his Bible, as he said, it was a Bible, mm-hmm. that outrage, that that travesty, um, he's putting a call out to his folk. And people better be aware, and the and law enforcement better be aware that, that this is going to be probably, hopefully not, but probably play a greater role Mm-hmm. In, in what's going to happen in the next few years. Oh, yeah. It, he's like, it, if you know, and it, like, if you pay attention, it, it dog whistle every single time oh he's goodness. given a speech. It's it's uh, it's absurd, man. It, it, did you see that they put out the, uh, well, I mean, it all started, I mean, like back in Nixon, Reagan era, the Southern strategy, it's like yes. stoke racial tension, stoke xenophobia. Yes. And he's out there right now giving uh, um, speeches and calling it like the Kung flu. And like, even to the point oh, where he's God. like trying to like rally up the crowd to like say it. And he, like, he knows what he's doing he's not stupid oh absolutely absolutely and 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 it's like and he just keeps getting away with it because it's like he does it in such a way that there's he always leaves himself an out and then there's always in his followers like well if that's what he said that's not what he meant you know and it's like but that at what point do you start holding this man accountable for the things he says you know there's always not only that when they said he was only kidding and what did he say two days later i don't kid right yeah and it's just like but then it's caused this like chaos of like i think we're just like overwhelmed with the amount of like flip-flopping and just audacity this man has nobody i i think nobody really even knows what to do about it you know like it's like we've never had a president like that before and so it's like i think the one thing that possibly is could is good from because i try to look at like the good and where this could go is that i think that he is illustrating uh, glaring flaws in the presidency and in our government systems uh, and things that could be exploitable that I, I really believe that we need like massive s- systemic reform in government and just the American institutions in, in general, you know? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. I absolutely agree with that. And in the, the economic system of the world, I believe that right now we're in a moment where there's going to be changes to, to the law with respect to law enforcement. There's going to be there's going to be a, a un, 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 um, covering of the BS that happened from the late 80s until really now 
that, that blame black people for everything that's happened to them. And so there's an opening for legal and structural changes with respect to black people. But the next thing is the economy, mm -hmm. that you can have an economy where during this pandemic, billionaires made billions and other people are absolutely, they, they have nothing, they've lost everything all over the world, I think could herald an, a, a, a cry across the world for an economic change. And it might put a crack in, in global capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the way that I, like, I try to like look at everything and, you know, speculate. And I think that uh, racial equality is the domino that could start to actually topple this entire global capitalism. Because I think once uh, I think the conversation is getting started, we're realizing that things aren't as it seems and that uh, a certain group of people really are oppressed and treated horribly. And then we're going to because, see, the the white collar criminals that we're talking about that always get away, uh, the the economic oppression affects all of us. But it yes. disproportionately affects uh, colors, marginalized communities and people of color because they were already historically set so far back. So yes. once the because it, when I when I talk about this, I, I always want to make sure that I'm like the racial equality absolutely needs to be focused on. And it absolutely we need to be have reform and move a society where that like we fix those issues and we we give it the attention it deserves. But also in this, as we move forward, we also need to, because even Martin Luther King was talking about this at the end of his life, and it wasn't actually a very popular opinion, is that it's economic oppression. So we need to roll with this steam of uh, racial equality and then realize that the real like overlord enemy is like economic oppression, and that affects us all. So we need to all team up against that system and use this momentum, you know? And now, yes, because what often happens and it's happened, what I felt was the, what I criticized about um, Bernie Sanders is that he was over-focused on the economy mm. because you can, you, can, you can lift up the economy for white people and leave people of color and specifically black people mm. on the ground. And we've done it over and over again. Absolutely. And so, to, so I think you're right. It has to be wedded together. Uh, it shouldn't be mutually exclusive because remember, capitalism's beginning was slavery so capitalism's comeuppance has to has to be both economic and racial in its demands and in its change and i want to mention something else this idea where where people say oh you know people voted for trump because those white men they don't have the jobs they used to have that's all a bunch of bullshit. nixon appealed to their racial consciousness when those white men had good union jobs in Pennsylvania, in, in Ohio, they had good union jobs. They were buying homes. They were putting their kids into college. They had what they wanted materially. But he appealed to them racially, and they went for it. So it's not about economics. They might be hurting a little bit economically, but nothing compared to what people of color have been suffering and are suffering in this country. This idea of white grievance, it just galls me. Like, what are you complaining about? Whining, oh, I don't get to be mean to black people anymore. Oh, I really miss it. What the hell? I, it's just, it is so galling to me. It's so outrageous what white people complain about. Even these middle-class whites that have, have been in the news lately for the incident in, in, in uh, Central Park and the, the man and lady who told the man he shouldn't be writing Black Lives Matter on his own property and the barbecue and the little girl selling water, this white grievance that, oh, they're getting away with something when when we get away with everything. It's just, it's, it's, 
maddening. Yeah, it's maddening. And and it, it, it's this this social matrix that people are plugged into and perpetuated by politics, and you know even generational trauma. Because I I honestly like. I think that, uh, you know, as I got into spirituality and I start like sort of overlapping it with science, I, I truly believe that traumas are encoded directly into DNA. And I mean, that's provable by like things like alcoholism and things like that. Um, okay. It's I think that we're all like the more I, I liken our reality to computers, it starts to make a lot more sense to me. And I think that we are like uh, technically we are just code passed along, you know, with with genetics and and uh, the story of that code also gets in embedded in that. And and I think that um, the one of the things when Rani started channeling and having her spiritual awakening, uh, the thing that that spirit was telling us is that we all really need to start doing ancestral work. Uh, which is like connecting with ancestors and because, you know, uh -huh. as in, in America, like we don't have a practice for that. Most every like all. countries, indigenous peoples and everything, they honor their ancestors. They and even like uh, in Africa, after wars, the when the warriors would come home, they would actually stay away from the, the communities for like a month or so and live with a shaman. So the shaman could like pull all the trauma from war before they reintegrated into society. Like they were very conscious about this idea of trauma being embedded into lineage. And I think that I, I honestly, I, I think that we're going to have to, I think we can't really get where we need to be as a society unless we have some sort of uh, spiritual element to it as well. I, think, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I, I worked with a lot of, of Marxists and communists over the course of my life, but I absolutely agree with that. In fact, getting back to what you just said, um, so much of African healing had to do with communal music, mm -hmm. communal dance and communal rhythms where we have to heal each other. We're not because the, the an, another aspect of capitalism is isolation. You want to have everybody in a separate unit so that they'll purchase separate items. You want every you, you don't want a communal area because then you only one toaster would work for five families. Mm -hmm. But you don't want that. You want people isolated. And I honestly think even though social media has brought people together in some ways. I feel I fear that it has isolated them in, in other ways, but that that was unheard of in almost all traditional cultures. Some stuff, it was everywhere but Europe. And I can't explain that. I can't explain that. That every people understood social music. The idea to put music into a little thing that you wore in your ears and not share it. That what that every human group, every human group shared music in a group. It was a bond of solidarity, it was a way of understanding, it was a way of reacting, it was a way of healing. And the idea of isolating music into your ears alone, it's, it's, uh, that would have been unheard of in, in any other culture. It wouldn't have happened, I don't believe, in yeah. any other culture. That's but again, we want something you need to buy. And I've always said that that's why we have to be made insecure by beautiful women who don't have an odor Oh, I wish I was one of her or manly men that that, you know, can get any woman because they have the right mouthwash or, or, or toothpaste. Ooh, I want to be like him. Low self-esteem is the grease of capitalism. You would not be foolish enough to put your value in a Porsche if you knew you had value as a human being. Absolutely. You might want a Porsche and I don't have a problem. You want to have a Porsche? Have a Porsche. But don't think that makes you a better person. Yeah, that's a man. I talk about that a lot uh, in like because uh, I'm starting philosophy. I call it a reverentism, which is basically it's just focused on like sort of deprogramming a lot of this stuff. And it's all about like doing intro like self work, 
finding your self-esteem, finding your your worth, and it's it's based in like alchemy, which also actually is, had its origins in Egypt. And it's crazy because yeah. like spirit is just teaching me all of this stuff, and I'm finally yeah. like it's starting to make sense. Um, and you know, this this music is uh, it's so universal. It's so even before I had a spiritual awakening, and I realized there is way more to just this matter, material matter. And that's the other thing too. Capitalism wants to keep the mind in the in the matter, like that. And I think that's why true spirituality has also been suppressed because once you know that yes. there's more than just this physical world, that yes. alone, that revelation is life changing. Like the moment I learned that my whole, my whole world changed because I was like, oh, I've felt like something more actually exists. And now I know personally that it does. Yes. And, and you can't control people that, that are like, if you think that ah, we're just like our whole system is set up to like be a worker bee, like from the way we teach kids in school to like, you know, just the, the society is like work for something that you can't have. Like we glorify the rich because like we think that wealth and property and these things make uh great people but really it's just that's the the carrot that capitalists dangle in front of people when they don't realize that they can have such meaningful genuine human interactions and creations and art and all of this stuff that you don't need like money and things like sure it, it helps you know and and money can do things but really like the most valuable things are like don't cost anything <laughs> yeah and community yeah absolutely and community um what did you call it irreverent Irreverentism. Irre that's irreverentism. That's cool. I like it. Yeah, uh, it makes me think of John Stewart, actually. Yeah, because I, I just like I, I just see I, I started researching into these spiritual traditions, and then I started realizing that like there's all of these like universal truths that underlie all of them. Yes. And then yes. when it starts getting weird is when you get into Western traditions. That's all about this programming of being less than or unworthy. When yes, and go ahead. One of the basis of that, believe it or not, is monotheism. Yep. The fact that that um, the world first believed that there was a spiritual essence. They didn't worship trees and rocks, but they recognized that the the the, the fundamental spirit of the universe was in everything. Therefore, you acknowledged and appreciated everything. So your altar would have perhaps. A representative of of a place in soil or a rock or a tree not because you're worshiping it but you're you're worshiping the unity and 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 um eternity of of the spirit and that's what was done now in egypt they they had many gods tut and and ptah and all these gods and so, but they understood this, I think was so interesting when I, I was in Egypt and I saw this on a wall and I was just blown away when Ramses and the king of Hatti had their big battle of Kadesh and it was kind of went to us to a standstill. So they made a treaty, the first peace treaty in the world. And they said how they would go from there. But one of the things that Ramses said at the time was uh, the way that you are able to actually connect with and make a treaty with another people is that they take one of your gods and you take one of their gods. This was after Akhenaten in Egypt had said that they should believe in one God. And Ramsey said, you can't have peace with other people if you believe in one God, because then you're telling them, no, you have to be like me. No, I'm better than you. So therefore you have to be like me. And the destructiveness of that 
it has happened, oh my God, where there used to be Africans in certain places in Africa used to be able to, to present a united front. When the Haitian people rose up, they rose up under the banner of voodoo. They were united, they were equal. But when the missionaries come into either place or anywhere in the world, the missionaries come in, now you're not a part of your community anymore. Now you're a Baptist. Oh, now you're a Methodist. Oh, now you're Episcopalian. And each of you looks at the other one like, huh, I'm better than you because you don't really understand Jesus. And well, no, I'm better than you because I do and you don't. And that is the breakdown of unity and the breakdown of the ability to actually resist and have self-determination. It is that Bible. It is that concept. Yeah. That believing in this makes me better than you. Absolutely. Not believing in what I believe makes you lesser. And it is completely destructive. That's nothing. I'm I'm trying to say honestly, what good ever came from that? I don't know. Right. I don't I can't find it. I mean I think I if if I was even having to stretch or something, like maybe technological achievement or something but but at what cost you know what i mean like it's like i it's like even that i don't i don't see the worth or the value in that at all um i agree with you you know it's and and, and it's not like those things could have been happened in another way we have this true. idea that everything is linear and if the white man hadn't started driving this train none of these accomplishments would have been had number one when the white man went into every place he went he took, extracted whatever was a good idea, mm -hmm. a good technology, a good medical practice. He took that back to Europe and labeled it after himself. The most egregious example I used to teach us when I taught science is that the German who went to Peru and found the, the bark of a tree, I can't remember the name of it, and took it back to Germany and made aspirin and called it bare aspirin mm -hmm. and left the Peruvians out altogether. They had been using this for a thousand years to cure their aches and pains and headaches. But they didn't get any credit. And this has happened. It's not that the white man didn't take this knowledge and do something materially dramatic with it. He did. But a whole lot of it he didn't invent. He got it from all over the world. But then he would, once he took it, he claimed it was his. Just like the idea that Egyptians were white. They had to be because they did something. The fact that there's even in a, another religion, another type of Christianity that says that the pyramids of Mexico were made by white people, that they what? never, they, the uh, whites claimed that the great Zimbabwe was made by white people. They it just, they cannot acknowledge or fathom that people were able to have technology as well. So as a superior spiritual system without their help. And I'm not saying don't give whites credit for some of the stuff, but then if you're going to give them credit, then let them take the consequences of their negative behaviors and let them be responsible and make it up. Yeah. Pay the reparations that are due for the things you have destroyed. You can't have it both ways. You can't say I did everything and but and, and, and even if I did it through violence, that doesn't mean that I have to pay anybody back. Mm -hmm. It's it's nothing right about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it you know it's I I see this I see sometimes some sometimes the conver this conversation tips over into like uh white guilt and white shame and you know and it's like I don't believe that's the route that to to go like to push back on that it's like I you know I think that I think it just needs to be an acknowledgement of the history of what has happened and not like I'm ashamed to be white or I you know or like it but it it just like it, the the denial of the atrocities that has been done is the real issue here. Yes, you know yes. it's and and 
and I understand the tensions. I understand the how some uh, people of color would would take that stance, and and um, but you know, I have nothing. I have no problem with state when I hear something like black power or anything like I, it doesn't bother me because I know like I truly know like I'm I guess I don't know if it's because like I am like comfortable with who I am as a person and I just like see the bigger picture like that but you know that that you people hear that statement of black power and they're just like oh my god they're trying to take something of mine you know but really they're just exactly. they're just trying to take their own like autonomy exactly. and their own like they're just trying to say, here, I am just as good as anyone else. I'm, I'm here, you know. Maybe even that, and I'm, I'm, yes, I'm in the human family. Yes, right. absolutely. Um, because the thing is, I don't mind white guilt if it leads to humility. Yeah. Because a part of the problem is, when white guilt, if it just stays as white guilt, then you feel so guilty, you go to some group of poor people and try to tell them what to do to make up for what you've done in the past. And you never listen. The thing about white people is that we don't listen. We'll go into a place that I, because I, I spend part of the year in Haiti every year, um, I'll see these missionaries come in and I'm trying to stay away from them. They're not where I live, but when I have to pass through the hotel to on my way to where I live, they'll have this, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and the little Haitians and no, you need to shut up and listen. They know what they're doing. They may not have the financial means to do what they know to do but they know to do it they don't need your help all they need is is, is material resources because their material resources not only were taken by european colonials white colonials uh capitalism but it continues to be they're not paid for their labor they're not paid for what they get uh from, that they take from the ground through their labor and so all we're uh, to me it's like if guilt leads to humility to a, a, a sincere looking at your own attitudes, you're not superior. You are not a superior person who needs to help the little people. Mm-hmm. You have created this and you need to dismantle it. And this is something I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who was saying, I'm tired of them always asking black people to fix white people. White people need to fix white people. Mm-hmm. And to I, I think that that's true. However, I also think that what allows us to know what is better is our participation in other cultural experiences with people of color. I remember many years ago going to um, Rigoberto Manchu was speaking about the struggles of El Salvador and Guatemala. And she said, what you, you guys, you know how to do a lot of stuff, but we can teach you how to live in community because you don't know that. And that's true. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to live in community. We know how to compete. Yeah. I was in another country. Well, all right. I was in Nepal. My sister wanted me to go to Nepal with her uh, in 2018. And this guy was talking about, well, and all this and our culture and blah, blah, blah is based on uh, compassion. And I said, huh, what an idea. My culture is based on anger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yep. it's just like, and so it's 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 our behavior but it's also our center we have to deal with what's in the center and if the center is not an awareness of the humanity of all people then we're 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 running into problems we'll have we'll have difficulty if we think instead oh i have the answer if only they would be like me i've literally heard missionaries say that those people don't think the right way they don't think like white people actually say that <sighs> In fact, I'll give you another example. I was in Zambia in 1984, 
and I was talking to this young lady who had taken me to see this beautiful waterfall and it was really far away farther than I was comfortable with. And then we ended up in her home, which was a round house with a thatch roof, way cooler than the brick house that I was staying in. And she said, well, you know, the, the missionaries teach me, the nuns teach me that if I want to be a good Christian, I have to eat with a fork and a spoon. And I said, that's interesting. Do you have a Bible? And she said, of course I have a Bible. She, I said, well, read it. There's not fork or spoon in the Bible. There's nothing Christian about that. This, this idea that they just put a veneer of Christianity on whatever they wanted, whatever, caught, whatever allowed them to be in control, they called Christian. Yeah. No yeah. And, and yeah, thank you for expanding. That, that's what I was trying to say about white guilt is that it's like, it, it's obviously, it's, yeah, it's necessary because that is your key, as long as you channel that in the right way and it leads you to the right realization. And that, that is the having the compassion and using, uh, I, I think, I think it just, people can shut down and stop it like, well, you know, I'm, I'm white and I'm shamed, you know, but uh, instead of just stopping there, how about, uh, like look at the system and i think us as white people i think what we really need to be doing in addition to changing other white people is helping this change the system like we don't need yes. to change black people we don't need to change people of color we need to create the space in which they can flourish because they're 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 not incapable they're beautiful wonderful people that are just as uh, like complicated and diverse as anyone else and they don't need our help what they need our help yeah. doing is changing the system because it's so stacked against them that's exactly right. That is exactly right. And that's why if guilt leads to working with under black leadership, mm -hmm. now not all black leadership, because you know, there's every, every, everything can have, have a, a, a negative participation, but to be willing, because this is what, to me, what I felt was the secret of my success as a human being is that once I saw the horror and this was my background, this was my own background personally in my family, my mother's people were slave owners. But instead of just feeling guilty and then going on and living a, 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 a privileged life, what I did was work with Panthers and I worked with other black organizations. I worked with civil rights organizations. I worked and, and then let me lend my support to your leadership. I'm not going to lead. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say, oh, now I know. Now I'll make an organization. But, but rather accept the leadership during the anti-apartheid movement. Work with the African National Congress. Work with the Pan-African Congress. We can't tell them what to do, but we can work with those organizations in order to bring about the change that they get and that we get by working with them. Yeah, absolutely. So I really do think it's a hopeful time. I really, really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. It's there's there are many. Uh, I think the internet has connected us in a way that makes movements and change possible that hasn't been possible in the past. I think it can. It can, can, right? But yeah. I think it's, all you sure. have to do, all you have to do, and and we should be looking at this to protect our movement, is uh, Egypt. Cell phones caused the revolution of 2011, but they did not seek the institutions that could defend that. And now the repression and the the uh, the the, the, the system, Masisi is every bit as bad as Mubarak ever was. Mm -hmm. And that because. The youngsters, they got together with their cell phones and they were so audacious and they were so brave and they died so bravely. But they did not build, maybe they just didn't have time. But we should be thinking about this, that when the change comes, we have a means to put in place something that will protect us and allow all of us to flourish as a human family. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and that, that reminded me of a point I wanted to make earlier is that uh, we need to take note because you see these corporations, they're really quick to jump on board with Black Lives Matter. Oh, yes. Like, oh, oh yes, yes. Black, like let's keep the conversation about nothing but race. You know, look at us. We're woke companies. Like, we're on board. We get it. But really, they're the ones like robbing everybody behind yes. the scenes. So yes. We, yes. we cannot fall for that. Like, that's cool that they're making these statements and stuff, but that they want, they're just, they're, again they're trying to slip out of this again so it's like we have yeah. to hold them accountable and that is i think comes after the um you know the the racial like as the racial equality movement develops i think that is the next step but for right now it's like because it's the conversation has always been swept under the rug and it's always been about something else like it needs to the conversation needs to focus on racial equality right now but it also needs to go into another phase after that Yes, because you can't just having a world where black people are not beaten and not shot and not tased to death and not choked to death doesn't mean there's any kind of economic equality. Mm -hmm. So we talk about equity and equality. The whole structure of abuse, the structure of separation, the structure has to be changed. And that, again, I agree with you completely. It has to be both racial and economic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the, the concept of a billionaire is absurd to me. Like a single individual does not need that much money. And the fact and that we have, yeah. And the fact that they're, they're like mythological dragons just sitting on wealth hordes while the rest of us like starve and like things are crap. Like if there was, I really believe that there had, there should be some sort of global wealth cap. Like, I, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the logistics would work, but it's, it just does not make sense to let somebody accrue that much wealth. You know. I, agree. I I totally agree with you. And and uh, the fact that it didn't used to exist and that this has accelerated in the last 50 years, has totally accelerated in the last 50 years, lets me believe that we're going to get to a tipping point. I mean, it could be stop using money. Yeah, I think about that we a lot. We don't use money. They don't, their billions is nothing. Yeah. If we find another way to, or the thing is, this is what I want to say. The way capitalism and white supremacy have organized human behavior which, what was the guy's name? I'm trying to think of the Japanese man wrote a book that said this was the end of history. This is all there's ever gonna be. This is how it is. And nothing is going to change from here. This was the height of civilization and economic understanding. Nothing will change. This is the end of history. Oh my God. And this is not the only way that people organize to live. We have to go back before 500 years ago and look at how did people live in this environment. And the thing is, Every people lived according to their environment. Their ways matched. Was it a dry place? Was it a wet place? Was it a mountainous place? Now we have one way to live that everybody's supposed to live the same way no matter where they are. We're all supposed to eat the same things, drink the same things, behave the same way all over the world. And that's nuts. It's crazy. It, it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any, doesn't make any sense. So, so I totally agree that uh, the idea of only organizing people around money. I mean, if you read the history of how that happened, how did you get people that were either farmers or they had cottage industries where they made maybe rope? Okay, I make rope and I go and I sell it in the market and I come back. How did you get them to stop making rope at home and go to work in a factory to make steel products? How did you get them to do that? And that was with two things, brutality and what you said earlier, the enticement of material goods. 
How am I? I hate my job, but I'm going to go to it eight hours a day, five days a week, because I like the stuff that it allows me to buy. That did not happen overnight, and it did not happen naturally, and it did not happen nonviolently. People had to be forced into that paradigm. And what I'm saying is we have to be willing, and this is why I love the Black Lives Matter movement for really blowing apart the paradigms that, that have been holding us all in constraint. The idea saying defund the police and, and as they will say, and everybody says, meaning channel other social needs besides a security force, look at that differently. Yes, look at this differently. Look at the ed public education differently. Look at jobs and is the essence of human behavior money? And if it is, is that okay? Is that all we, is that the best way for human behavior to be organized? And I think if you look around globally, uh, you'll see that that is not the case. <laughs> there are absolutely that's the thing. Globally, my God, so many people. Capitalism was only been a hurting for most of the world's peoples. Now people say, yeah, but look, they all like cell phones. Okay, so you you live it in mud. You don't have adequate nutrition, but you have a cell phone. So yeah, cap capitalism really helped you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's madness. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. Like, man, this conversation has been so illuminating because you helped me connect some dots that I like. I, I was digging at it before with the reverentism and stuff, but it's like I just through our conversation, I realized how much monotheism and religion at like Western religions and colonialism has all and, and capitalism. It's all like it's all like just one giant system of oppression and like social yes. programming. Yes, it's exactly true. That's exactly true. Wow. They decide what rewards we are willing to work for. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think we have a very wonderful chance to truly change that. You look all around the world, global uprisings. You see, before the pandemic started, I was yeah. like, I was so excited. I mean, like my heart hurt because people are literally getting shot in the streets of like Iran. And but, you know, but people are were finally standing up. You see it in Hong Kong. You see it all over. There is a massive global awakening shift happening that they're like, something is wrong here. Like, what are yes. we doing as human beings that like, how is this not working? Exactly. And there is a branch of that. Another thing, too. Capitalism has left legions of young men without a means to be men. Col uh, colonialism first started this. Colonialism in, in America at the time, it needed, it needed women and boys in order to function. The American slave system and then American uh, domestic system in America needed black women and black boys. It didn't need men. Didn't want men. This was duplicated through many many parts of the world. So in and now there is no place for young men to be men to be able to, the things, the trappings that make a man feel like a man. So what has happened? So get some guns, get some Jeeps, get some sunglasses, and now you can, now I'm a man, I, I can do whatever I want. This has destroyed whole swaths of South America, of Africa, of Asia, where being a militant, whether it's at first, for a long time it was under communism, now it's under certain aspects of, of Islam or other, the other ideas, the gangs, gangs in the America, in the United States here, um, where if we provide a channel, which is one of the geniuses of Egypt, I'm going to mention in a minute, if we provide a channel for their heroism, 
we can have a peaceful society. But if we ignore them, incarcerate them, beat them, brutalize them, try to make them submit, try to make them submissive, then this is going to be an ongoing, horrible, painful, painful problem. One of the things I thought was brilliant about Egypt is that they figured out you get the energy and young manhood of the people to build something beautiful and dramatic for the country. And then you have given them something that for the rest of their life, they can say, I built that. I built that temple. I put that pyramid up. I put So the, the incredible energy and um, the tendency of young male humans that has this tremendous energy put it into something positive that they can be, be a part of and recognize for the rest of it, it's it, of course. And what do we do here? No, we say you don't bow down sufficiently. You can't have a job. You don't have the means to get a house. You can't take care of a family. And then we blame them. Say, oh, you just had children without having a family. It's 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 a horrible um, trap yeah. that the world finds itself in. And it's not just America. It's all over the world. You have these armies of young men wanting to be men. And where you see this, when there's a crisis in the country, these very sometimes terribly damaged young men, gangsters or whatever, they come forward to help. And they would help all the time if there was a way to do that. This was, I've seen this true in place after place where the, the most frightening young men in a community will come forward to distribute food after a hurricane or after a, after a crisis and want to help. That's what they would like to do all the time, but there's not, it's not built into the system to absorb and, and embrace them and embrace their energy. And this is a global problem that capitalism has created. Wow. Yeah, that's, wow, that's so powerful. Yeah, like the toxic masculinity and the, I think that's just, that thought is so profound that there is no, there is no channel for, uh, no productive channel for masculine energy. So it's been diverted to oppression and militarism. Wow, that's, wow. Man, this has uh, been such a, enlightening and wonderful conversation thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) uh do you have anything else that you'd like to uh cover or because i mean Mm -hmm. seriously i could keep talking to you because i i think you're fascinating and i this conversation is amazing but i think i'm getting talked out yeah okay (laughs) and i really appreciate this i I mean i've had a chance to like flex my ideas and it's felt very very wonderful for me and i i just hope we're at a moment in time when people are questioning the structures, the systems, and themselves. And I think that is going to prove very beneficial for this for this country and for the world. It is happening all over the world. And I'm, I, I, I encourage white people to study, to learn, to self, do self-introspection. Listen to John Coltrane, I'll say that. Listen to John Coltrane, listen to Bob Marley, and, uh, and, and find a way to be a part of a movement for change in the world. Yeah, that's, I couldn't say it better. That's, I absolutely 100% agree. Well, maybe thank you so much for being here. Like, that's, thank you, Steve. Uh, I really appreciate you letting me speak. And, you know, and I would honestly, like, if you ever have anything, you write anything up, uh, you have any thoughts, you want to come back, just email me or call me, and uh, I would love to have you back because this, okay. was, this was great. So anytime you want, uh, just hit okay. me up. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All power to the people. (laughs)